And Father, we know you're a God of peace, you're a God of love. And Father, this morning I want to ask a special prayer for peace for Israel and for Palestine. Father, pray that love will uh, cause all the people's heart to warm and that they'll find a oneness, Father, that they can stop their uh, war. Father, we love you. We thank you for um, your promises that are sure. And Father, we know that when you come the second time for your people, there will be true peace in this, peace in this land. And we love you. We thank you for this day. And Father, we pray that um, as Tim brings the message this morning, well, Father, that we'll feel that your presence has been with us. And we love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. So that's the elementary school through the fifth grade, or preschool through fifth grade. And thank you all for being here for worship this morning on this second Sunday of Advent. It's um, wonderful to have um, our elders uh, sharing with us and leading us in the lighting of those candles. Um, Steve and Annette last week and Carl and Lorna this week. Thank you, Carl and Lorna, for leading us in that. That's an important celebration in the history and traditions of, uh, of the church to anticipate and wait for the coming of the Messiah. There's a lot going on in this Advent season. I'm sure many of you have personal office parties and family parties and all those things, but I want to invite you to the things we're doing as a church family this season. And uh, it's great fellowship opportunities, opportunities to connect with people, enjoy the Christmas season together. Tonight, the big thing we have is our family caroling night. And let me tell you how it works. We meet here at 5.30. Our goal is to divide into three different groups and go three different directions. We're going to two different senior care centers. We're going to a number of individual homes, too. And so if you can be here even a little bit early, that would be great. Help our organization of everything as we divide in different groups. Um, if, you, if you know you're coming, you can actually sign up on the Church Center app. That will help us have kind of a better idea ahead of time as we look at it this afternoon and think through who's, who's coming tonight. Um, but the goal is we'll divide up into groups, then all come back here. We'll have some Christmas cookies and hot chocolate here at the church. Um, but anyone can come. It's not a kids' event. It's not a youth event. It's a church event. So we'd love for any of you to come, um, whether you're a, a single or a large family or anywhere in between. We'd love to have you. Um, and some people have asked, well, is it you know, is this a little caroling where we like walk through a neighborhood and stand outside and like it's kind of wet today? No, that's not what we're doing. We're going to go, it's all going to be inside. All the singing will be inside, so it'll be warm, it will be dry. Um, but we'll be ministering to a number of families in our church and um, people within our community as well. So we'd love to have you for that tonight. That starts at 5.30, and again, being early would be great. Next Sunday is uh, two important things. First of all, Sunday morning, we will again be providing the uh, bags for the jail Christmas party this year. And so what that looks like is on Sunday morning, we're going to have 500 bags that are going to be packed in our gymnasium with 
a bunch of Little Debbie snacks, a gospel presentation, some socks, those sort of things. And so if you want to come and be a part of that, there's two different options for packing. You can come, if you're not in a Sunday school class, you can come and start on the packing during the Sunday school hour. And you can come as early as 9.15 next Sunday, and all the instructions will be out there. We'll have some people out there that can kind of help give you an overview of here's what you're supposed to be doing. Um, so you can pack sort of as your family, 9.15, 10.15 in, in the, during the Sunday school hour, or a bunch of us, whoever is here, at the end of the service next Sunday, we're going to exit together, we're going to go over there, and we're going to knock the rest of them out. And uh, if we have a few packed during Sunday school, that's great. But packing those 500 bags with a couple hundred people goes really, really quickly. And so we'd love to have you stick around after the service next Sunday to do that. And then uh, next Sunday evening is going to be our kids' uh, Christmas program. And that will be at 6 o'clock the evening of the 17th. And again, that's a for everybody thing. If you're an adult, you can't be in the show, right? But we want you to be at the show, okay? So that's what Kids Christmas Program means. It doesn't mean like if you're a family without kids, you don't, you're not welcome that night. No, we would love to have you here, um, but you can't be in the show, sorry. Um, then uh, on Christmas Eve, the 24th, we have two services that day. Christmas Eve is a Sunday morning, so it means we'll have our normal 10.30 Sunday morning on the 24th. And then our Christmas Eve candlelight service is at 5 o'clock that evening. And so we'd love for you to join, have your, you know, plan your family stuff around that, that night and bring whoever else. We always have a number. Christmas Eve tends to be one of those times when we just have a lot of guests, a lot of out-of-town out family. We'd love to have whoever you want to bring. And it's just a reminder. Listen, we'd always love to have whoever you want to bring. I mentioned it on Christmas Eve because it's an important time that's sort of built into our culture. But um, the Advent season, the Christmas season, is a season that people are just more open to things related to Jesus and Christianity. And we all have those people in our lives that will name the name of Christ, will say that they're Christian, but at some point they have sort of disengaged from a local church. Or you know them well enough behind the scenes to know that that they may be Christians in name, but they're not actively involved in growing in Christ and following Jesus. This is one of the best seasons of time when you can invite somebody in. And this season that we're, we're spending in Hebrews, where we're, you know, this week we're talking about just who is Jesus. Really basic stuff, but really deep stuff too. Something that hits somebody at whatever level. Next week we're talking about who is Jesus in comparison to angels. It's a great service to invite somebody into that has questions about spirituality or some level of fascination with, this, with spirituality and questions, but doesn't really know what they think or has doubts or questions about things. Um, we'd love to have you invite people in in this season. Um, lastly, I'll say both our women's ministry and men's ministries have things going on even in this season. So signups are live for the new um, uh, uh, the new section of the women's quad groups. Those are on the app, and we have paper signups for that as well, and for Every Man a Warrior, which is the next step after um, Better Man, which has just been completed by the guys that signed up for that. So we'd love to have you um, men, women, sign up for those things as well. Um, turn with me, book of Hebrews, um, chapter 1, and we'll learn who Jesus is. One of the things I love doing with my family, and it, 
And it works out to where just about every year there's, there's something that comes up um, in the theater that gives us a new opportunity to go see like a new Christmas movie. And, and I hope your family's like that too. You, that there's something about this season that Christmas movies are important. And like Christmas movies can mean a lot of different things, right? Um, so some of you, there's the, there's the Christmas movie crowd that like is the Hallmark movie crowd. And that's great. Been there, done that. I'm not, I'm not all that against it. Like I get it. I understand the appeal, okay? There's others that are not necessarily the Hallmark movie crowd, but are like the Home Alone crowd. Like, I really appreciate that too, important cultural element for my generation, and a Christmas is not Christmas without Home Alone 1 and 2. I don't know about all the others, they don't actually really count, but, but Home Alone 1 and 2, the originals, important part of the Christmas season. But in addition, there's all these other great Christmas movies that actually are the sort of in the, the category, the genre of the biblical Christmas movies. Um, the, the Chosen has done a couple of Christmas specials that are, that are good, and I hope you enjoy those that sort of stir your, your thoughts, your fascination, your wonder for what the Christmas story in an original sense was really like that. Watch movies that point you to Jesus. Um, the, the Nativity story that came out a number of years ago now, really good depiction of just what, what the drama of the occasion is actually like and how it sort of connects you with it. Well, my family watched a new movie this year. And let me just say, let me give the disclaimer. It wasn't like the most biblically accurate Christmas movie we've ever seen. But it was super fun, okay? And it is worth seeing. And is worth seeing anytime you... Listen, this is just the skill. I, this is my approach to The Chosen in general. Big cultural phenomenon. Like, I get it. People have criticisms of The Chosen. I get those two. Read the Bible. Watch The Chosen. Read the Bible. Like, that's how it works. Bible first, then, then movie about Jesus, and then Bible again. Compare, contrast. See, was this helpful? Was this accurate? Like, we, we're all able to do that. And if you want to ask questions about any of those movies or shows, things like that, I'd love for you to. Love to talk to you about it. But there's a real important thing where we should be using these cultural things, these depictions of Jesus, to, like, stir us into deeper Bible reading. Right? That's, that's the goal is to engage in Scripture deeper because of what we would see on the screen. So there's this movie called out, come out that has been in the theaters. It's called The Journey to Bethlehem. And y'all, it sounds, it sounds crazy, but it's a musical. It's like high school musical meets the Bethlehem story. And I know y'all are sitting there like, Tim, why are you promoting this movie? I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. When you approach any movies... Like, just take it all with a grain of salt and see what could really stir your mind into questions and reflection and things like that. This week, when we open the book of Hebrews together, what we're doing is we are looking at sort of the, the big picture descriptions of Jesus, the greater Jesus, okay? We introduced verses 1 and 2 last week. This week, we're going into verses 3 and 4, and we're going to understand who Jesus is. And one of the great ways to understand who Jesus is is by comparison. It's the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. Okay? So I want to introduce you to this idea of who Jesus is by contrasting him with the king 
who, he, who was on the throne when he was there. And in the movie, The Journey to Bethlehem, this is who the king is. Let's throw this picture up there. This is Antonio Banderas, who, believe it or not, plays King Herod in this new musical about the journey to Bethlehem. And I'm going to tell you, you watch this movie, you listen to this song, and this song will crack you up, and maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe, like, Herod is a really bad guy, and we should be really seriously, like, disgusted by him. That's right. I, I get that. Herod's a bad dude. This movie, like, this portrays Herod as a bad dude, and this portrays the insanity of Herod. And if you look back, that's historically accurate. This man was insane. This man was a narcissist before we knew how to define that term as a society. This man was, was in one sense, praised by people because of his incredible construction projects, built a lot of stuff, built stuff that remains even to this day. You can see things that Herod was involved in building. He was legendary and respected because of his leadership and construction, but all of his construction was so that we'd be talking about him 2,000 years later. And actually, a movie that portrays that insanity well is actually a little bit endearing to me when it says this man was obsessed with being king. This man was so obsessed with being king, he did not trust his own son. That comes out in the movie. He, in fact, wanted to kill his own son because he knew that his son wanted the throne. That comes out clearly. This man wants to kill every male child in, um, in the area of Bethlehem because of what he hears from the wise men about. That's a biblically accurate statement. This man is a crazy person. And you know what? Antonio Banderas does a really good job of portraying a crazy person who is sitting there saying, is so stinking good to be king. Like, it's an <laughs> iconic line. And in your notes for the sermon, Tim doesn't do impressions. You can put that in there. But there's something about, like, this movie and the way he portrays this crazy person who takes control. And here, because here's the funny thing. Herod wasn't even a real king by the way we usually define kings, right? Herod was, like, looking back historically, and it's actually one of the criticisms some people give of the New Testament. Some people are like, Herod was never king. He was a governor. We know that there was a, an emperor in Rome that Herod worked under. But if you go and you read Israelite history of that day, that man thought he was a king. Uh, that man acted like a king. And the soldiers that worked for him, they actually worked for the emperor that was thousands of miles away. But that man was so obsessed with power and control. But that's the picture that we get of what a human king is. Like, that's the norm, right? And if you look historically, there's not a lot of humble, servant-minded kings in history. There's not a lot of people that are just gentle kings that really care deeply. Whether you read actual history or you read um, historical fiction or, or you watch movies that are trying to portray historical realities, we always see this emphasis on a king as somebody who has control, ultimate control, ultimate power, and it goes to their heads. And they turn into crazy people, and they turn into somebody that just wants to be focused on their wants, their desires. That's what came out in this movie, and that's why I bring it up, because I think it's really interesting and it's really helpful when you think about who is King Jesus. 
We sing songs every Christmas about this king who comes into a manger and this king who becomes a man, takes on the limitations of physical human flesh and steps out of his throne in a humble sense. Well, what Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 does for us, where we're going today, is Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 will remind us that this king who came in all humility, who came and put on limitations by putting on human flesh, who came in these, in these small circumstances into a small town and a small nation and a small family, that he really is the eternal reigning king, the sovereign over all. This passage, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, will give us seven statements about Jesus. Okay? And in those seven statements, we're going to categorize those seven under four headings. Seven statements, four headings. What's interesting is next week, we'll look at Jesus as compared to the angels. And we'll notice that in the comparison that the author of Hebrews makes between Jesus and angels, he uses the number seven again. And he uses seven Old Testament quotations to define the differences between angels and Jesus. And so, one through four, seven statements. Five through 14, seven quotes. There's a lot of symmetry there, and we'll see that in, our, in our, uh, the way we unpack this over the next two weeks. But for now, let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Pull it up in your scriptures. We'll have it in the screen, and, we'll, and I'm, I'll read through it, and then we'll go through this list of seven. <coughs> Excuse me. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That's where we were last week. That simple statement of comparison in the way God brings revelation, the way God speaks to people in former days versus the latter days. And we're still in the latter days. But who is this son? Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. These seven statements in verse 3, or in ver at the second half of verse 2, the heir of all things. The creator in verse 2. In verse 3, the radiance and the imprint, the upholder of the universe. Still in verse 3, the purifier. Still in verse 3, he sat down as an intercessor. In verse 4, he is superior to angels. Those are our seven statements. But we're going to unpack them, as I said, around four headings. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we see there's three really important offices of leadership, first in the nation of Israel, and then what we learn in the New Testament that's hinted at and predicted in the Old Testament is that Jesus fulfills all three offices, king, prophet, and priest. First, the priests are, are given in the, in the old covenant laws as those that are the mediators, the intercessors between God and the people. The priests stand between the people. It's an important role because the people of Israel cannot connect with God on their own without a priest offering sacrifices and going in between. The people don't hear from God on their own without a prophet who is the mouthpiece of God, who speaks for God. 
And the people ultimately need to be led by a king who rules and reigns. Jesus fulfills all three offices. And all three offices, king, prophet, and priest, are described in the first six of these statements. So that's how we'll, how we'll do it today. We'll do king, two statements, prophet, two statements, priest, two statements, greater, one statement in relation to, el- or to angels. Okay, That's our simple outline for today. So let's start the second half of verse 2, the two statements under the heading of Jesus as king. He is the heir and he is the creator. First, it makes sense in verse 2 when he says that this person that is coming is the son, or this person that has come is the son. In these last days, he's spoken to us by the son. So there's not a leap between son and heir. And so it's easy for us to think those mean the same thing. The Son of God and the heir of the throne are basically the same thing, except when we recognize that not all sons inherit the thrones from their father. We know that from Scripture. We know that from history. But also, when you think deeply about what Scripture says, what Scripture uniquely says about what it means for Jesus to be the heir, it's, it's different than what non-scriptural resources will say. It's significant because there's a, there's a verse that the author of Hebrews has in mind here, and it is Psalm 2, 7, and 8. In 2, 7, and 8, first, the psalmist says, is God speaking to the person who we know will eventually become Jesus. We, we know that the psalmist doesn't know all of that. The original audience doesn't know all of that. But in Psalm 2, 7, and 8, God is speaking to Jesus and says, You are my son. And he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So two aspects of Jesus being the heir in Psalm 2, 7, and 8 that are so important. Okay, Number one, the ends of the earth are the possession of the heir. That means Jesus reigns as the heir of the kingdom over all of creation. And so this ancient document of Scripture describes all of creation as the ends of the earth, okay? We know in 2023, creation is not limited to the ends of the earth. But we know that's figurative language for for the psalmist. The psalmist isn't going to use words like all of the galaxies and the entire universe and cosmos is, is under his reign and his possession. He uses language like the ends of the earth. Because the ancient author, that's all he can see. That's all he can conceive of. We see the sun, moon, and stars, and we can actually send, um, send vessels and, and um, telescopes and send images back from the ends of the earth where we can see into the far reaches of space. And we see that when, it, that when Scripture says Jesus is the heir of the ends of the earth, Jesus is the heir of the entirety of the universe. Things we see and things we don't. It's super cool to see stars. It's great to get out in the countryside, away from city lights, and go out and see a sky full of stars. But there's thousands that you can't see. There's millions of things in this created universe that we cannot see with our eyes that Jesus reigns over. And so you have this this little king, Herod, and it's so stinking good to him to be king, and he loves it so much. But he's this little king of this little land 
under the authority of another emperor who ultimately, both of them have received their authority. The only reason they're allowed to reign is because God allows them to. But Jesus is so far beyond our imagine. It's not just this church that Jesus reigns over. It's not just other churches that Jesus reigns over. Jesus reigns over the most contested pieces of land in the world. Jesus reigns over Ukraine right now and reigns over the Gaza Strip right now. Jesus has sovereign control as the upholder of the universe over all of those areas and even into the ends of the universe that we don't see. There's no boundary to Jesus' reign over creation. But then also, it's not just the physical land of the, of the inheritance. It's people. Psalm 2.8 is predominantly about Jesus' inheritance from his Father being people. And I'm going to tell you what. That's what matters most. To both Father and Son, to God and Jesus, what matters most in talking about inheritance is people. What Jesus wants out of the Father in Jesus' reign is the people. Jesus comes to earth not to reign over land and to have possession of a throne in Jerusalem that Herod so worked up about. No, Jesus comes for people. Jesus comes for the nations so that the nations can be reconciled to God the Father. So when we worship Jesus as the heir of all things, we see him as the heir of all creation because he was there when it was created, and all things were created by him and through him. And we also see him as the heir of our worship, obedience, faithfulness, because he bought it. He bought our lives. He paid for our sins. He, he made us new by the blood of his cross. So Jesus, the heir of this great eternal royal throne, Jesus the king, his most valuable possession is not some scepter, it's not some throne, it's the people that are made in the image of the Father that now can, can enter into the throne room as joint heirs with Christ. We are the possession as he inherits the kingdom from the Father. It's a beautiful picture and something that should fuel, as Jason said, wonder, fascination. How do you grow in Christ? You keep having questions. See, that, that's, that's not what we always think about. Sometimes we think about growing is about just knowing facts. We need more information. But the beauty of a relationship with Christ is when you still see, keep having questions. How does this work? I want to know more about this. How is he fully God, fully man? How does he become the heir of all things? What is his royal reign like? And that fascination leads us to deeper study, leads us to deeper relationship and connection. You are not going to have a healthy marriage relationship if you are convinced you already know everything you need to know about your spouse. And you just check those boxes and you say, well, you know, we've been married for 15 years and so I've learned all the, all the buttons I'm supposed to push and all the buttons I'm not supposed to push. I know what I need to know, so we're just going to now enjoy, coast through our healthy relationship. It doesn't work like that. You keep learning. You keep wondering. 
And you keep growing in relationship. And so with Jesus, fascination and wonder are what fuels us to go deeper in Jesus. So that's why in Advent, we talk about Jesus and we circle around Jesus. We keep Jesus the center. And all throughout the rest of the year, we still keep Jesus the center. And we might not talk about the manger as much when it's not Christmas time. And we might not talk about shepherds and wise men when it's not Christmas time. But we still talk about Jesus because every season of, the, of our lives, every season of the year is centered around Jesus. And we've got to live in light of him knowing he is the king over us because he created us and he's received us as the heir of the throne, we live in response to him in all things. It's interesting as you look at him as creator in this passage. He is the creator of the world. The word there is the creator of the ages and not the creator of the cosmos or the universe. There is a, a, a way that this is described in Greek that what the original author is doing is he is hinting at the fact that he is the creator of the world that even now is passing away. He's the creator of this physical world. And he is saying that his, that his reign is not just over this physical world that is passing away, but his reign will outlast the world he rules over right now. That's what's beautiful about this picture. That... that he will continue reigning when the earth passes away and a new heaven and new earth join together in perfect unity and he will reign in a new kingdom that is different than the way he's reigning now and we are going to be fully with him in relationship. There will be no more sun, moon, and stars to light our days and nights because Jesus is going to be the light and all will receive our light from him. A beautiful picture of what Jesus is reigning over. But he's not just the king the heir, the creator. He's the prophet. Prophets, the role of the prophet is to reveal things. Prophets speak for God. So Jesus, ultimately, in a fuller sense than any prophet could have, Jesus reveals who God is. And the pictures we get are really powerful and really poignant, as, as we see. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So the glory of God is this thing that's over here. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. We don't even fully see it. But in order for the glory of God to get from here to us, it radiates through the person of Jesus. How many of you have ever felt to the touch the actual sun? Flame, it will burn you. Flaming hot. But how many of you have felt sun rays? That's how we feel the sun. It's a manageable it's a, it's a tangible way in which we can engage with the heat and the energy that comes from the sun is because the sun radiates and we feel it. We feel it in a real way, not in an artificial way. We feel it in a real way. And so the glory of God is something that even, even now we're unable to fully possess and touch and live in the midst of. And yet, Jesus radiates it into this limited, created world so that we can see who God is. He gives us the effects, the power, the tangible touch of the glory of God, the beauty of God in this life now. The exact imprint of his character, or of his nature. Sorry, I just uh, uh, gave you a hint at what the Greek word is. The exact imprint, the word for imprint means character. Not it doesn't seem to make sense 
how is character an imprint, but, but we'll get there. Let me first tell you that the way outside of Scripture that that word for character or imprint is used most often is of a coin. Now, historians love coins. I like history. I don't get worked up about coins. But if you read history, or especially if you like read archaeology, people love them some coins. And I don't get it. I don't get why it's so exciting that certain coins are found in different places of the world and people get so excited of like, oh, this is a coin with, with Caesar Augustus on it, or this is a coin with Emperor Justinian on it. But it's this thing that is really important to historical research. And here's the thing that, that sort of hit me as, as I was reading and, and researching this week. I was reading about the Byzantine Empire. You don't have to read about the Byzantine Empire. You know there's a social media thing where um, women ask like their husbands and boyfriends, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? You'll see this. It's kind of old now, but a few months ago, this was a big thing where you, a, a woman would take their, their phone and video their boyfriend or a husband, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And these women were just stunned. Guys think about the Roman Empire way more than girls do. And it was this like huge cultural revelation. Listen, I think about the Roman Empire pretty much all day, every day. Like, it's my thing. Jesus lived in the Roman Empire. I'm sorry, nobody hold a video to me because I'm going to say, like, 27 times a day, at least. I don't know. But anyway, I'm talking about the Byzantine Empire, which is different but similar. So the Byzantine Empire, I was reading about how the Emperor Justinian, there were coins with his face, 15-year-old coins, found 1500, from 1,500-year-old 1500 archaeological sites in China. That's impressive. Coins that were minted in modern-day Turkey showed up in islands off of Sweden, in China, Russia, Western, other, other places in Western Europe. Now, did his rule and reign go all of those places? No, it did not. But the commerce, the trade of the empire of those days, the effects of the empire went all the way to China went all the way to Sweden. And we know that the effects of the empire went that far because we found coins. Now that's actually kind of cool. Because here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the exact imprint of the person of God. Now why did coins, ancient coins, have faces on them? Now this coin has George Washington's face on it. I don't need to know what George Washington looks like. He's been gone a long time, and if I wanted to know, I could Google George Washington, and I could see another painting or, or whatever. But in the ancient world, the, one of the reasons that the coins had the name of the ruler on it, people didn't know these rulers. People didn't see these rulers. But these rulers had these powerful names and these powerful images that held control over a vast empire, over a vast area. So to put that ruler's stamp on a coin meant the trade that happens through this currency actually always points back to that emperor. Jesus, when he was asked about paying taxes, he pulls out, he asks, bring me a coin. Whose, whose image is on that? That's Caesar. Okay, render to Caesar what is Caesar? What is he saying there? What is, what is, what is the cultural thing that he's doing there? People know that coins have imprints of rulers which show that if you're using that coin, you give respect, worship, authority to that ruler. So, when we learn 1,500 years later that the Emperor Justinian had a rule that wasn't just, you know, modern-day Turkey and other areas in kind of the uh, um, 
in kind of South Asia or the modern-day Middle East, those sort of areas. Yeah, great rule, reign. But the impact of his reign went far beyond, all the way to the edges of the earth. Here's what I want you to see as we think about coins and imprint. If Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, and we are Christians, a word that really just means a follower of Jesus, means that our goal is to be imprints of the imprint. It means that God himself wanted to show us himself. And in order to show us himself, he had his eternal son put on human flesh so that we would know what he looked like, know what his character was like. And because we now know what God's character is like, we know what our character should be like. In fact, any attempt to define character outside of a guide doesn't make sense linguistically. The English word for character is derived from the Greek word that means imprint, that puts a stamp on a coin. That means that any sort of secular attempts to define character, if you can't tell me what that character is like, if you can't tell me who the example of character is, there's now no real definition of character. One of the reasons we struggle with defining morality, ethics, good and bad, outside of Jesus, is that we don't have an imprint. We don't have a character to look at. And so how do we know Jesus' rule and reign affects and touches other parts of the world? Because his people walk as imprints of the imprint, and they show the love of Christ. They radiate the glory of God. We show the character, imprint, and nature of God because we've been shown what's been radiated to us, the heat, the energy we've received, the imprint we've seen. We radiate out. We represent out. So the prophet Jesus has come not just to show us and reveal to us who, Jesus, who God himself is for our own benefit, but as a guide for our own application for own life. Love like Jesus. Have mercy like Jesus. Be righteous like Jesus. Those are the implications of this beautiful radiance and imprint that we see. He's not just the radiance. He's not just the imprint. He also upholds the universe by the word of his power. Number four, he is the sustainer. As the prophet, he sustains. He, by his word, sustains. Prophets are those that use words. God's words, Jesus' words, are so much stronger than the prophetic words. We've talked about Isaiah before. We spent last Christmas in Isaiah. I spent a lot of time in Isaiah to uh, prepare you for Advent through this Advent devotional, so I hope some of you are reading through it. We have more if you, if you want one. But that will show you the ministry of Isaiah that was largely kind of futile. Like really cool for us all these years later, but didn't really make a whole lot of difference in his day. That was the life of Isaiah. Isaiah's words could convict and change people's minds and move them to behave differently. But they really didn't. They, they ultimately didn't. Isaiah spoke exactly what God wanted him to speak, and his words came across full of truth, full of power, that ultimately made very little change on the society of his day. Jesus is a better prophet. Jesus is a better prophet because his words don't return void. 
Because his words uphold the universe. The universe that was spoken into being by his words. Now his words uphold it. And so we know that Jesus, the prophet, is upholding even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it looks like things are spiraling out of control. We recognize, yeah, our sin has an effect. Our sin causes the world to spiral out of control, and yet somehow Jesus doesn't lose the power, doesn't lose the control. Somehow Jesus is still ultimately moving everything towards his desired end, eternal rule and reign, and us with him. He's not just the king, he's not just the prophet, he's the priest. And so in verse 3, we see as the priest, he makes purification for sins. Sorry, that's verse 4. Um, verse 4 says, uh, or no, it is verse 3. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What the priest does is he acts as a go-between. He offers a sacrifice for sin, but he's a better priest because he doesn't offer the blood of somebody else as a sacrifice for sin. He offers his pure blood, his righteous blood. So he's a better priest because he's the sacrifice himself, and he's a better priest because he enacts a better relationship with God, a better covenantal structure than what we had before. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go over these next few months. Basically, here's where we're going in Hebrews. We'll be here until May, okay? To right up until to Memorial Day, we'll go through Easter, we'll be in Hebrews for May, until May. And what we're going to see is all of these things about all these comparisons and greater and how Jesus is a high priest. And we're going to learn about this guy named Melchizedek whose name is hard to say and is even harder to understand who in the world this dude is. Okay, But one of the reasons that we're here in Hebrews is because Jess in her Bible study, Jess does a Bible study on Thursday nights, and they started doing this a few months ago. They started walking through Hebrews just a chapter at a time discussing it. And so inevitably... When Jess is discussing things with other people, she's, come to, she's coming back and discussing things with me. And she's telling me about all these cool things she's finding in Hebrews. And I'm like, you know what? Hebrews is a book that is easy for us to forget about, and me included. Easy for me to forget about. The power of it, the strength of it, the, the fascination of it, but also the relevancy. So all these conversations with Jess about things like the priesthood, like, how often do we talk about the Levitical priesthood? Well, in my home, we've talked about it a lot recently because we've been talking about the book of Hebrews. So in this church, in the spring, we're going to be talking about the Levitical priesthood a lot because it's important to understand the distinctions between the two, the two covenants. So those, of, so those that are... So, and listen, the Bible study even has a better way. This is, this is a, a, a plug, guys. When we are here on Sunday mornings... I've told you, I'm going to give you a couple of videos to go a little bit deeper. I would encourage you, study this book with somebody else outside of this setting too. Because there's so much more that we can discuss. And the way you fuel relationship and growth, again, is questions and fascination and wonder. So discussing these things about how it works, the way this group of women have been doing on Thursday nights, is a beautiful thing that leads us to real growth. So I'm going to be the, the, the one scratching the surface. But if you want to go deeper, go into a Bible study, go into Jesus, start a new one, whatever. Study Hebrews beyond the scenes, and you'll see even more weight and beauty in what the Word of God is doing here. Okay, so the purifier, here's what he does. 
Jesus offers the better sacrifice, mediates a better covenant, and then he sits down. One of the most important themes of Hebrew is, where is Jesus now? He's sitting down. The author of Hebrews loves to talk about this. He loves to tell you that Jesus did this, this, and this, and then he's sitting down. So I'll, I'll give you an example. One, three, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's sitting at the right hand of Jesus. Eight, one, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Ten, twelve, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why is this so important to the author of Hebrews? Because for every Israelite that had ever lived, they knew that the priest was their bridge. They knew that they couldn't make purifications for their own sins. They couldn't connect with God on their own. And so this, this audience of the book of Hebrews, they're wondering, is going back to Judaism better? Is the sacrificial system better? Why? We talked about it last week. They were persecuted less as Jews than they were as Christians. As Jews, there were concrete things they could do. They knew for sure their sins were paid for when they killed something, and the priest told them. But with Jesus and the praying and the, and the having faith and the assurance of your salvation, that was, that was difficult. It was less concrete. So the, so the audience of Hebrews is really struggling with these questions, thinking maybe we need to go back to Judaism. Maybe we need to go back to the Old Covenant. And what the, authors of Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, that's done, and I'll prove to you that it's done, because Jesus doesn't have anything else to do but sit down. That's how we know it's done. That's why it's so repetitive. Your sins are paid for. There's nobody else that's going to pay another sacrifice for your sins because the sin payer is sitting down. But as he's sitting down, he's not inactive. He's not taking a nap. He's active in intercession with the one that he's seated right next to. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is saying, this is my son. Tim Cheney, he messed up again today. He sinned again today. But I died for him. I purified him. He's righteous. He's holy. And as we sit before the throne room of God, as we account for our deeds done in the flesh, Jesus the intercessor is right there at the right hand of God as our advocate to say, this is my son. This is your son, Father. This is, this is a joint heir with me of this kingdom because he has been purified. So Jesus at the right hand is acting as the bridge for us. There's an allusion here to Psalm 110, which we'll talk more about next week, but Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. That's, that's some reading homework. If you want to read more in Hebrews, read all of chapter 1, read Psalm 2, read Psalm 110. They're the background material for this. So Jesus is the better king, he's the better prophet, he's the better priest. And he's just greater overall. Verse 4, the seventh statement. We've seen, we've, seen the first, we've seen the statements already. We know what it is that Jesus is the heir, the creator, the radiance, the sustainer, the purifier, the intercessor. And the last statement is verse 4. He has become as much superior to angels as the name he has is more excellent than theirs. Why angels? Again, we're going to spend some time talking about Levitical priests, probably more than you're used to. We're going to spend some time talking about angels. But this is the perfect season. We don't sing about angels a lot, unless it's Christmas. Think about the songs that we sing throughout the other 11 months of the year. 
We don't sing a whole lot about angels. But when it comes to Christmas songs, we sing about angels a lot. We talk about angels a lot. We put angels on trees. We put angel decorations at our houses that don't stay there the other 11 months of the year. So that's why, right now, we're talking about angels. And we're talking about angels in a, in a way in which we think about the world we live in. People are fascinated by spiritual things. Even non-religious people are fascinated by spiritual things. People are fascinated by angels and demons and spirits. People are fascinated by how the whole angel thing really works. People believe false things about the Bible and about Christians. And people talk about how, how when Christians die, they get their wings and they become angels. That's not true. That's, the Bible never tells us that. Angels and, and people are distinct. We'll see that in chapter 2. It's very clear. But angels have an important role. We have movies about, we, we have TV shows about being touched by an angel, and we're sort of out of that now. Like we're, we're 20 years past like the real angel theme where we make angel movies and angel TV shows and that sort of stuff. But people are fascinated by angels for good reason. We don't know a lot from Scripture how they work. We don't know what they're doing right now. Are they they're angels in this room right now? Is Frank Preddy right? And there's like angels and demons all around us at all times. I don't, I don't really know. Scripture doesn't really give us a whole lot of clarity about that. It says we're in a spiritual war at all times. So yeah, there's some sort of battle going on in us and around us. But the problem was these people, this audience that, that the author of Hebrews had, was super fascinated by these beings called angels. And angels brought the word of God. Angels brought the good news to the shepherds on the hillside, right? Angels brought the law to Moses. So, what do we do with angels. Do we worship them? Do we follow them? Do we, do we obsess over them? The author of Hebrews is like, y'all just need to forget about angels because Jesus is better than angels. Angels are important. They're important servants of God. But Jesus is the focus. Jesus came from heaven. Number one, Jesus was there before angels, predated angels because Jesus is preexistent. Nobody ever created Jesus Jesus was a part of the creation of angels. Jesus left heaven to come in a human body. Angels left heaven to come and deliver messages and maybe sometimes took on human flesh or at least it appeared that way at times in the Old Testament. But angels didn't remain in human flesh. Angels weren't born in human flesh and died in human flesh. And angels certainly didn't come back from the dead, defeat Satan, defeat death and our greatest enemy and raise to new life all those who would believe in him. Jesus is the name that is more excellent than any other name. So how do we respond? There's a threefold office in the scriptures that Jesus inherits. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And our response then is to respond in kind to what he has done for us. We worship this king. And, and y'all, brothers and sisters, we... Every Sunday we come in here, we have an opportunity to worship, to sing, to pray, to open His Word together. It's a beautiful opportunity. But do we really think about what we're doing as worshiping a sovereign king who has ultimate control and ultimate authority? Or do we worship as if he's just our buddy? And we're, or are we too casual in our approach? As if like, yeah, Jesus, I don't really feel feel like singing right now. I don't really feel this song. I don't, I'm, I'm not really in a good place 
spiritually, so I'm just kind of here absorbing? Or are we coming in like, this is the king of the universe. He needs all of our awe, all of our reverence, all of our response we can give. That's how we sing. That's how we respond. So we can respond in worship, sure. And, and I want you to respond in worship this week in your homes as we do as a, as a congregation here in a minute. But also, going back to the coin, this is what I want our lasting image to be because this is, this is the image. I don't care if you're like George Washington, but this is the only coin I have. Jesus is the stamp of God and the coin of this world. And you are the stamp of Jesus and the coin of the modern age. And so I told you about the Emperor Justinian. Nobody cares about Justinian but me, and that's fine. But if 1,500 years ago, the guy that was reigning in modern-day Turkey had a coin with his face on it show up in China, that meant his influence expanded a long way. And think about 2,000 years later, the imprint of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And what can we do to practice the way of Jesus, to live like Jesus? What did Jesus do? He rose early and he connected with the Father in prayer and in the scriptures. Let's do that thing. What did Jesus do? He loved the poor. He loved the needy. He loved the sick and the hurting. He loved the religious and he loved the stuck up too. He loved them all and he served them. So practicing the way of Jesus, love for neighbors, connection with God the Father. And then finally, radiate. It's a cold season of the year. It's the season where we love the fireplace and the heat and the, the heat, the warmth that radiates out of it. Our world is cold. Our world is dark. But God loves it. God's love is warm. God's love is invigorating and life-giving. But how will that person that is suffering experience the love of Christ? Through the warmth that you radiate. Through the obedience that you show. To love the extended family member that's really hard to love. To love the, the person in need around you that asks you for help at an inconvenient time to love the person that is lost, that has rejected Jesus, that makes fun of Jesus in Christmas and just crates you? How can you radiate the love of Christ? This is our response to prophet, priest, and king. We worship the king, we practice the way he's shown us to live, and we radiate the love and the glory he's given us. So I'm going to ask the team to come up. And as they come up, I'm going, to, I'm, going to change, I'm going to close it a little differently. As the team's coming up and as we're preparing to worship anew, I'm going to pray for us. Father, these three statements that we've ended with, worship, practice, radiate, they are simple and weighty. So God, I pray that each one of us would have practical steps in each. That you would show us what it means to worship King Jesus in the life that you have given us, that you would enable us to make simple, practical steps to be more like Jesus by practicing what Jesus practiced. Prayer, silent meditation, reflection, and love for others. And Father, may you radiate your love, your beauty, and your desire for the nations through us. Warm us so that we can warm others through your love. Speak to us now.
through the music we sing, through the message we've heard. Amen. Thank you.